Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello and welcome back, everyone, to the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me, excited to be back after a refreshing week-and-a-half break, is my best friend and co-host, Patch. Hey, everyone. This week, we will be talking about our first of two straight Barry Jenkins films, partially in honor of Black History Month and partially just because they're both such damn good movies that offer plenty to feel and talk about. With us for this episode are two very special guests as well. First, we have our own Don Shanahan from Every Movie Has a Lesson. Hey there, folks. And last but never least is the Black Label frontman himself, Colby McAttack. Yo, 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 what up? I am glad to be back. We are glad to have you here, both of you. So much so. With introductions out of the way, guys, we are going to just go ahead and get right into it because we've got four people with opinions on a great movie, and that's going to be a lot of conversation. Here is your spoiler warning, listeners. As you know, if you've listened to us before, we talk about the full details of every single film so that we can dig into its themes. If you haven't seen this movie, please, please go see this movie as fast as possible. You need to see this movie. It's really that simple. And then come back and listen to this conversation and mine some great extra emotional context out of it. With that out of the way, we are going to go ahead and jump right in. Colby, please take us away with your one-word takeaway. Powerful. Mm. And saying this film is powerful still feels like an understatement. Even saying that it's a masterpiece feels like an understatement because if Beale Street could talk, it is a powerfully moving ode to black love in the face of societal disregard. Um, Barry Jenkins, he brings to life New York in a powerfully and colorful melodic kind of poetic way and it exemplifies the best and sometimes worst of us um kiki lane is powerful in her reserve um it's obviously her first big screen debut and i was just struck not only by her beauty but the grace and the way that her character was written but how powerful in all the delicate words that she says when she's on screen um it's it, it's it, the film's hypnotic, and it's hypnotic because of how powerful Nicholas Bertel's score is. Um, I've never felt the way that I felt, and I've never been a fan of a movie score the way that I am of his. And my best friend got married to Eros this summer, and it, he he left it as a surprise for me, and I bawled <laughs> when I was going down the aisle with him as we entered into the wedding reception and I got all of that to thank Barry Jenkins for. I mean, and the performances, the entire ensemble from Coleman Domingo from Regina King. I mean, it is just exceptionally powerful and it's <laughs> powerful. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, man. By all well means, I love to hear it. Don, what about you? Where did you land with your one more takeaway? Oh, see my one more takeaway is the same hypnosis as Kobe, but mine is gaze. Uh, the gazes in this movie. Oh my, the gazes. Um, 
you know me, I'm a teacher, so dictionary definition says that gaze means to look steadily and intently, especially in admiration, surprise, or thought. Uh, and I mean that word gaze as different than just a synonym for stare. Stare to me comes across as an, as an action of blankness. It's looking but with less intention and with less focus. There's nothing blank about the looks given in this movie, and I adore that searing contact and connection and drama that hits us just in our eyes, right between the eyes. Uh, so both the gazes perform directly into the camera or the imagery given to us for long durations that force our own focus and gazes. They're just such a powerful draw that, that sucks me into if Bill Street could talk. You know, you can, you combine that with the music and the performances and, and I'm there, but boy, this movie has me with the way they just look, look at each other, look at us, the gazes, man, the gazes. Mm. Well, okay, uh, Patrick, I'm going to make you go next because <laughs> I don't want to have to follow that up. So what about your one word takeaway? Well, a good gaze can be usually followed by great words. And uh, my one word takeaway was the word speak. I was trying to decide how to actually sum this up in a, in a good word of how I really felt leading this viewing. And it really came down to the fact that there's such a power in the words, power in the script. It's driven by... Very few action-oriented scenes. It's all about conversations. It's all about the dialogue between the different characters, particularly between the two leads. But it's all threaded together by her voiceover in giving you context to what's going on. Because we go back and forth in time to a what we consider a current time to a past. And the way that Barry Jenkins kind of threads all that together through her narrative, through her voiceover keeps you connected with these two as well as supplements it with a lot of different conversations, not only between them, but between these other supporting characters, like the family, like the friends, um, people that they come in contact with that through dialogue in situations, we come to find out more about them, that they've been living in a certain place for a while, that they're regulars to a convenience store, things that you wouldn't get or that you would get maybe in a more bland way by saying, these guys lived here for this many years. No, it's all about the conversation at that point. And when you combine the the gazes that Don mentions, it comes around to something powerful, like Colby mentions. And you have this really great work of art that is beautiful to look at. There are so many great scenes humanistically, not necessarily with the architecture, although it's a beautiful or a lot of beautiful set pieces having the characters framed the way they do things like that combined with this with the screenplay i think really amplify if bill street could talk to another level couldn't agree more with that as well um, so my one more takeaway guys was smooth and the reason for that is i feel like much as you guys have noted with your words there's different aspects of the filmmaking that all relate to your word and that's not nearly always the case patrick and i do these episodes every single week and it's rare that a word can apply to so many different pieces of a film but this is smooth in every sense of the word the performances the music obviously the cinematography that is absolutely astounding and such uh, so soft and tender for the most part there's no real rough edges to this i, I noted today that IMDb.com classifies this 
as its genres being drama and romance. And it's weird because I never really thought about this movie as a romance film. I don't know why that never triggered in my head, but it is a romance film and it is it is a romance novel. It is just a romance novel that we're so not used to seeing. And that's part of what makes it so dang important, because for millions of Americans, this is what romance looks like to them, even though it's not what romance looked like to me. And so the fact that it's just so smooth and so delicate throughout this film, there's no action at all. I keep waiting for like something to kind of like happen, but it, that's not what this is. It's poetry in motion, um, poetry in the words and the sound of it all the way through, um, in the gazes, in the look. So uh, smooth is where I landed on this. All right. So our first topic is going to be something that we don't always touch on. But again, this movie just requires it, in my opinion, because it is so stellar in the way that it was crafted. And I want to talk about the filmmaking. Barry Jenkins makes movies that force you to feel, uh, which is clearly something that we adore here on this show. So I want to know what you thought about how the cinematography, the score, and the narrative structure evoke mood in the viewer. What does it do to a provide us with this experience that the characters are going through. And we're going to just kind of hold to this. Colby, we're going to let you kick us off when we have a new topic. Don, feel free to jump in next. Patrick and I will say what we got to say when we can't. <laughs> yeah, it's really unique and kind of looking back. This was my number one rated film of 2018. And um, just kind of becoming a fan of Barry Jenkins. This is such a big contrast to Moonlight. But weirdly, it's very similar. Both beautifully well told, but just in the matter of the look, there was a grit to Moonlight where there is such a polish to Beale Street could talk. This it feels like a like a like a new car. And I've never experienced a film in that way. Like the colors are so rich in this film and what James Laxton does with the cinematography I'm like impressed with the framing because one, in the opening shot of the film, there's this swooping crane shot going down these stairs. And it reminds me of one of my favorite places to visit. We take my wife and my daughter is going to Savannah, Georgia. And it's how beautiful this town is. And it's so filled with history. And it's like, it's weird because a lot of these shots are so intimate and we don't focus too much on a lot of big exteriors or anything like that. And I love how intentional that between Laxton's cinematography and Barry Jenkins' direction, they love highlighting the beauty of black skin. Um, and I love that we're celebrating these darker-skinned African-American actors and actresses who typically and unfortunately um, you know, were not provided opportunities to be on screen. There was always a sense of colorism in Hollywood, and he's breaking down all of these stigmas. And it's, 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 it's gorgeous, and I love how – I interpreted this film as a black film going in, and it's unlike any black film that I'd ever seen. Um, he is breaking down the way that I've been conditioned and temperate, you know, to um, interpret black cinema. Um, he's a black filmmaker. This is a majority black cast, um, and I don't want to say that this doesn't feel like a black film, 
he's evolving of what black you know cinema is and i'm really grateful for it and like i commented earlier <laughs> this score it transforms me and um i i, I i'm I've never been one to just casually play like a film sound, a film score, film soundtrack a little bit different. But this score is amazing because it's you, it's incorporating instruments in this film that I would never have thought to incorporate with a 70s romance film. Um, and it blends it really, really well. And um, it's like what you said, Aaron, it is so smooth. The editing, you know, going between different scenes. And because we're going back and forth between these periods of time, not once did I ever feel lost at all. Um, and I, and I, I just, I, I credit that to the way how all these objective elements in the filmmaking work together, um, and really flawlessly for me. Yeah, I'm right there with you where, um, I like the way you say it where like Barry loves black skin and I, I go further and say he just loves his subjects. You know, in, in the subjects he loves in his films, whether it's Moonlight or this one or his previous works, um, he just really wants to put, like you said, that camera right on it. He, uh, in, in some places he wants to put grit, in other places he wants to put polish. And that's where this movie totally is, is, is the latter. For me, it's just a dreamy swirl all around. You know, this movie just dances and moseys and enlivens when we go backwards and watch the emerging love of Tish and Fani. Uh, like you said, that opening scene, just to slow something down and make a shitty New York park look like the most romantic, isolated, intimate place these two will ever have. And to do that with angles and to do that with editing and to do that with that music in just a simple, unabrasive, non-kinetic way. I mean, I mean, the camera's moving and all that, but not, like you said, Aaron, not looking for an action scene, not looking to overswell any particular moment where he just hits his marks. The pacing, the length of each turn, and the balances between the time periods feel smart, savvy, giving us kind of a little bit of a level of anticipation and longing, all of our own, when we go back and forth, like, oh, I, I just got a taste of Tish and Fine, but now I'm back in the present where it's not so good. Take me back. You know, um, at the same time that it matches that anticipation and longing of the two lovers, you know, where they want every little waking moment with, with each other. They don't get that, but we want that. So as much as they want it, we want it. And I love that the mood of this film can evoke that and can pull that in. A humble brag moment. The screening I went to, uh, Barry Jenkins was there with Kiki Lane. And uh, it was in Chicago during award season. And uh, he talked about how, and I'll go back to gaze, but at the same time as where he was trying to point his camera and point his narrative structure. He did not know. Uh, he loved he loved Wallen's work and he loved what he wanted to say here. But he did not know the female gaze. Uh, and one place where that shows up with all these little pieces of filmmaking is their love scene where like how many movies do we have where we're we're lapping up and looking on the screen of what we're seeing as men. And he says, I needed to flip that and make this movie about the female gaze because Tish is our core, is our center and all that. And here we have a male filmmaker, black or not, representing the female gaze, you know, when Fani's taking off his clothes and. And she's just laying there in her anticipation. And there's just something to be said about a filmmaker who can get, capture that in period, in modern, and otherwise. And in all those ways we're talking about, the smoothness, the colors, the score, the softness, washing over the trauma that's in the movie. All that comes from just that delicate touch we've been talking about. 
one of the things that I think Barry Jenkins does well is how he frames the characters, uh, particularly, I mean, most of his characters, but particularly Tish and Fani using the, uh, these close up single shots and two shots of both of them. I remember watching a couple of Edgar Wright movies and really honing in on the fact that the way he frames his characters' faces, not only are they the only characters in the frame, but they're so close that all you can do, you can't help but notice the expressions, notice the nonverbal communication that exists. And it told me that Barry Jenkins cares intimately about these two individuals. And he wanted to evoke the sense of asking us as an audience to care deeply about them as well. Because as a white guy, as a white guy from Arkansas, I am like two factors removed. Excuse me, three factors. Because I'm a white guy from Arkansas that was born prior to this time period. So I'm three factors removed from understanding anything about the story. And when you, as a filmmaker, put faces in the center of the frame, it forces you to look at them and it forces you to experience what they're experiencing. There are a couple of really powerful shots near the end of the movie when we're getting... I won't call it the resolution, but we're just getting to the end of the story. And there are facial expressions, shots of Tish and Fani without words. They're just looking at you or looking at each other. But really, it's almost as if they're breaking the fourth wall to a point where they're saying, this is us. This is who we are. And I don't know that we would have gotten there without the rest of the narrative being what it was. But I think when we get those particular moments, when we get the framing of these two side by side, when we get the framing of them together, like intimately connected physically, every shot seems to count. It's not just filming them. It's almost as if he's painting their emotions digitally on the screen in the way in which he frames them. He's not just saying, okay, we need to get, it's not just a regular two shot where we need to get Tish and Fani talking to each other. We've gotten that, but he takes special care in significant moments to allow for us to just sit with them without words. And I think that as much as I love the dialogue, as much as I love the words in this movie, those are some of the more powerful moments. All we see are how they're reacting emotionally without words, with their facial expressions to each other. And it's incredibly powerful. Absolutely echo every single thing you guys are saying. Um, I, I love those words. I like the fourth wall aspect of this as well, because Don, you mentioned in your one word takeaway about gaze, there are moments when they are gazing into the audience very, very distinctly. It's not just characters gazing at each other. We see that, but it, it has a duality to it that is affecting us in a different way than if we were just watching them. And I think it starts with the way that and, and and let me first say, as I guess as a disclaimer, I haven't read this book, so I don't know what is being transposed or not, and I'm not even going to talk about that. So I'm just wholly speaking about the film and Barry Jenkins' choices, and if it's also James Baldwin's choices, then great. But I don't know how much of this is like that. But we start the movie with the words, you ready for this? I've never been more ready for anything in my whole life. And I feel like we are talking about very, in a fourth wall way, the love story in the way that we are about to see it, right? And 
then we go into the way that the story is told, which is through narration and through flashback vignettes, which is one of my favorite things in the world. I love little vignette scenes to tell a story. And I think we get a very unique perspective because this is Tish's movie more than anything. Fonny is a, a very close to an equal partner, but Tish is the narration that we get really throughout this movie and through this whole story because it's about how it life is affecting her and her ability to uh, navigate 1970s Harlem. And so I really felt myself additionally connected to the story because of the narration. And it was part of what makes me really recognize the masterful work of Barry Jenkins, because a lot of times, and I would say more often than not, when that happens in a movie, I find myself thinking this is sort of gimmicky and this is not really working for me. But I thought it worked beautifully here because of the overlay of all of that, the, the those perfect elements, the score and the cinematography. And when those words are just poetry coming out of the screen, I mean, you get, it, it, it just all marries together. You guys talked about the love scene and I, I love how it's shot as well. Not just because of the, the way that we see black bodies, which we are not used to seeing. And it's very interesting to compare the love scene that we see in this movie and totally different contexts for it, but like versus Colby's nodding. I think he knows what I'm going to say versus the love scene that we see with black bodies in Queen and Slim and the way in which these two are shown to us. But for me, this feels so realistic. Like this is something that Americans, black, white, or otherwise, can relate to. Because this is how real romantic first love making takes place. It doesn't take place with the lights on and the music pounding and like like it's like all hot and bothered and completely perfect, right? It's a little awkward. And when two people are really in love, it's about one person or both, but someone is trying to make the other comfortable. And what Fani does, putting on a record, turning the lights off, letting her disrobe under a blanket, like these are really, really romantic things that he is doing. And, and I applaud not just being able to see that, but from a perspective of someone watching this who wants to see how a man should treat a woman, I like being able to see that represented on screen. Right. And, and to see a man standing there in his whitey tighties, Stephen, I mean, Stephen James is ripped. So let's not, I mean, let's be real. Like, I mean, I, I don't look like that standing in my whitey tighties, but it's, it's so, I think, empowering for people to see themselves in this way. And I just thought that that was a great way to display their love for each other. And the, and the words, of course, the poetry comes like it does in almost every aspect of this film or every great moment. The way that he tells her this, he says, don't be scared. Just remember that I belong to you. Just remember that I wouldn't hurt you for anything in the world. You're just going to have to get used to me. I'm here all the time in the world. Hold on to me. And I was just, I mean, I'm swooning. Like, take me, Stephen James. You know what I mean? Like, funny. Like, I'm raising my hand at this point. Uh, and I want to talk about that. I want to talk about their love story because that's what this is. You know, I mentioned this is a romance. We all feel it. It is about Fonny and Tish. What 
do we get as far as insight of how romantic relationships operate in 1970s, early 1970s Harlem for black Americans? Like, what is this movie showing us that we haven't seen before, Colby? It's it actually it, it gave a lot more dimensionality than what I thought we would have. Um, growing up with parents who my mother was born in 1962 and knowing and seeing how those relationships were fostered because they're deeply influenced by a lot of the things that were going on at that time, relationships in black households and those, and that and my mother was born in Yonkers, New York. So not far from where this story takes place. A lot of black relationships are very much transactional. Um, a matter of convenience because they needed to be. Um, there was still a lot of healing and there's still healing today um, from our country's greatest sin. And unfortunately, it's warped and distorted a lot of the love on what the true ideal of what we think of like a love in a marriage should be. Um, I found it really amazing um, the differences between Regina King's version of what a wife is um, versus the mother opposite her, uh, who was Fani's mother. Um, I would say that they both choose to love their spouses. It's just in very different ways. Um, we can interpret as audience members that, you know, um, Fani's mother and she, you know, there she's even referenced as being a holy roller, um, that she has a greater love and connection, um, you know, to God as opposed to her husband. And, Different ways you can interpret, you know, the verses in the, you know, in the Bible and everything like that. Um, and, you know, we even see that the way that she relates to her husband, she barely even looks at him, you know, at points throughout this film, even recognize him as a husband where the connection that you see between Regina King's character, Sharon and Coleman Domingo as Tish's dad, there's a little bit more there, but there's also like a mutual respect for understanding like boundaries to one another, um, where, the roles are a little bit more defined, but in a more mutually beneficial way. And it's unique how we see these two parents and how that's impacted Tish and Fani. Fani, as you explained, Aaron, in the scene where there's this intimate lovemaking scene, um, a lot of those words, if you just hear the words, they could come across as disingenuous depending on how the person's giving them. Um, I've said those words um, to women, uh, knowing because I can and I can manipulate certain situations. And I'm so glad that that scene was constructed in a way where I never felt that it wasn't honest to Fani's character. And it had such this dignity to it. Um, I love the construction of that scene because it didn't feel voyeuristic. Where I'm peering in on like these two, you know, bodies and I want to just see them lustily go after each other. It was so delicate in the way that they cared for one another. It was a stark contrast to what love looked like in the 60s. You know, we have a man who is struggling to find work, a place of his own, a sense of himself inside of a world that disregards him and men that look like him. They typically don't have time to find the beautiful parts of love because of that. And it wasn't lost on them. And it, it was really, it was really beautiful and really refreshing to get a reminder that there, there are those type of stories. Cause I've seen the color purples and I've seen 
the beloveds and I've seen so many hard love stories and we just get this one visage of what a black man at that time looks like and it's just this angry broken man that needs to be loved but doesn't know how to show it and it was cool to see Fani in a whole new light that I wasn't expected I'm really really thankful for that no I'm right there with you you know it's it's you can see which is kind of crazy when you see Anjane Ellis and Michael Beach as Fani's parents how you can get somebody so soulful to come out of those two, especially when you see those just catty daughters. He's got sisters with him, you know, who are just a, just as bad as the mom. And, um, so I, I'm with you. Like when you, I love the word, use the word transactional. Like you said, like, you know, um, this time period would be something like shaft, you know, where, you know, it, it, it's hit it to quit it. It's, it, it's moving. It's, it's from one conquest to another, but here's this guy who had a girl in the neighborhood that he grew up with sharing bathtubs with, who just always looked out for and loved. And we get to see a lifelong love in a place where most people don't get to carry one life in the same place with other people. You know, it, the, the mobility of it all or the, the, ah, just the, the difficulty of staying put and stability of it. So we see two really stable people come out of this and two soulful people find each other and they didn't have to look very far to do it, which is always great to see. And when you go to the parental angle, I just think of how the dads are different than the moms in this movie. You know, um, uh, you get to that family summit, which we'll talk about later. But like when the dads leave, they're like, hey, let's let's just go get a drink and get out of here. And the women take over. I said, wow, what a clash and change of power that is. Normally, how many times have we seen the movie where the dad is the first one to go? Oh, my God, you got my daughter pregnant. Like it's going to be the dad blowing his top in the volcano more than these moms. And yet, you know, these dads kind of get together in that agreement of, hey, this is beautiful. This is fantastic. If anything, we need to do a legal activity to come up with enough money to get these two back together. So I love the difference they show between the dads and the moms because you're right. We have the holy rollers versus the grounded realist. We have those that love versus those that hate, and it's never the dads, which is such a cool thing to see because now or then we get more deadbeat dad stories than we ever get solid, awesome dad stories, which I loved in this angle. How that speaks to love, I think you see a guy like Fani and even a girl like, like Tish, you know, with great examples in their lives. Maybe not so much Angelo Ellis, but, you know, Fani got his soulfulness from somewhere and it helps. And we know Tish is grounded as can be in it. And they're just such a nice match. I look at this relationship and, you know, we've talked about the parents. I want to focus a little bit on the siblings. At the beginning of the movie, when, when Tish gives, the news there's a moment when she she basically puts her head down and her sister immediately says unbow your head sister and i think that that whole conversation the way it played out the way in which her mom <laughs> brings out the wine brings out the tall glasses as she calls them and she starts pouring and dad's like what's going on here don as you said when you Typically, in a movie that centers around kids that aren't supposed to get pregnant, you're getting a freakout moment. Sometimes it's played for laughs, but not only do we get something that feels a little bit unconventional for what we're used to as as an audience, we also get something that's incredibly hopeful, where you have a family that gathers around and says, we're going to take care of you. Because contrasted against a woman the Holy Roller, who 
I had a tough time swallowing. You have this irony that exists with this family that says, this child matters. This child is not a bastard. This child is not a mistake. And it was so incredible to see this endorsement of these two people. And I say people very specifically, not kids, but people, because that's ultimately what they're seen as by her family and by his dad, at least, to where it's about the village that's raising the child. And when we look at this idea of love, unconditional love, that unconditional love expands beyond just these two individuals. They needed the community help of their families and what they did legally or illegally or in secret or in public. And that even expanded beyond that to other people in the community that they connected with, as we saw. That unconditional love gave value to their relationship, gave value to the child that was born from that, and it endorsed them as human beings more than anything, but also as this couple that we see from the early stages of their friendship that that's what they were. They were friends. I think it's so precious that you see these two kids playing in the bathtub with each other, fully clothed, but not even thinking about this sexuality. And it almost makes those intimate scenes that we get later that much more impactful because it's not lustful. It's not a quid pro quo relationship that we're seeing played out here. It's not a, I'm here to save you. It's a guy who says, look, I'm going to show you as much as I can that you don't have to be afraid, that you can feel safe with me and I will do whatever I can, not so that I can get you in bed, but so that I can be one with you. There is this deep oneness that they have for each other, that they want with each other. And when Barry Jenkins just plays that through, he gives us just enough to let us believe it and to long for it with them. But I don't know that any of that would have been possible without these supporting characters, these supporting cast that rallied around them and didn't just support them, but just said, look, we want to do whatever we can to make sure that your life is fulfilling no matter what. And that looks different. I think at one point in the movie, it's before the the dad's, go on their uh, quest to get money. And I think it's his dad that tells her dad, stop worrying about money. You haven't worried about money up till now. And if you start worrying about it, it's going to ruin you. So don't, don't worry about it. Never heard it really spoken that way, but it's a very true thing. Your energy doesn't need to be put into worrying about money. It's also his way of saying, we're going to take care of it. We're going to get her to Puerto Rico. We're going to make this happen. And um, again, the writing is just superb in this. Yeah, I I love what they say in that moment. He says, now I know some hustles, you know some hustles, and we've got to set our children free. And that is not accidental. The the lingo there of setting our children free is not an accident that it's written that way uh, in any shape or form. And it was particularly powerful for me just to hear that. I was like, because that's what I was thinking of, right? Um, And I just, I love, love, love that relationship of those dads and, and how that plays out. And, and it's fun because 
we don't get a lot of the parents necessarily in this movie, right? It's really 75, 80% Fonnie and Tish. But when they're that impactful, and they're not impactful for the typical, and I hate this phrase, but they're not impactful in the typical Oscar bait way. They're not scenes that are created to showcase acting ability. They are naturalistic scenes that are just elevated by the talent and by the passion that clearly these people have for portraying this type of characters. Um, I, I, you guys have said so much amazing stuff and I'm going to not get stuck in that typical circle of just repeating it. And even though I want to, but I agree with everything you said, a couple things you did. We did. I wanted to point out, I love the moment where Sharon is with Tish and she is comforting her when she wakes up from her nightmares and she tells her, she's like, I know, baby, I know about suffering. Um, she tells her, you know, we're all counting on you and we believe you can do it. And you go back to that poetry, man. I, words, uh, the way that the words are in this film, I, they, the, the phrasing is just something like, I've never heard it quite like this before, but it just washes over me. She tells Tish, she says, I don't want to sound foolish, but remember that love is what brought you here. And if you trusted love this far, don't panic now. Trust it all the way. And yeah. I mean, I wish I could just scream that from the rooftops to everybody in every relationship and every struggle everywhere. You know what I mean? And see, and see, that's all Baldwin. You know, I mean, he rate uh, this the book that's based on. I haven't read it, but I've kind of perused and kind of looked around because I wanted to know, like, I, after seeing this movie, how, mu- how much of this stuff is is Jenkins spinning a yarn, or how much of this is Baldwin? It's all Baldwin. Um, he writes extremely descriptive scenes right down to the body language. All those fidgets we see. Of Fonny walking into like the prison visiting area, fumbling with his hands because he's just happy to see her, and he does. He's just man, there she is, and I can't wait to go talk to her, even if it's behind glass. And I love that line, like you brought up from Sharon. I think that's where, for me, that's the cementing line in this film for the unconditional love. Is you know, I mean, don't get me wrong, the gazes are there, and that's one piece of it where the gazes of him to her, her to him, the gazes she takes at her growing belly. The stares of the family of support and even the look of customers and people for Tish and all that. But like also going back to the idea of how we see romance and how we see love, um, the easy, nice PDA in this movie, the, you know, uh, public space of affection, the touches, the rubs, the holds. This isn't trying to, you know, bang each other in the bathroom. It's just, I'm going to hold you. I'm going to be with you. I'm just going to spend this time here. And, when the film's tagline is trust and love and you cement it with Sharon's line, man, that's, that's it. That's, that's the unconditional love that we, we, we always wonder and hope for and, and adore about what this is going, where, about where this is all going. Yeah. So good, man. And, and just, I guess to kind of transition, I, I really like, there's a couple great, sweet scenes that speak to having a relationship when you don't have any money and when you are living your life in the way that these folks are where they are, um, the scenes in the restaurant, when he takes her to this restaurant and the only reason they're getting this fancy Italian dinner is because he has a friend who's a bartender, right? And twice they rely on him. Once he has to rely on him as a complete favor and it's really tender and it's not just done to impress the woman. So you can take her home and get her, 
into bed, right? There's dancing and there is just a beauty to the way those scenes are shot, right? It is really, really romantic in a way that is unlike the typical romance film that calls attention to it. And I don't even know how quite to describe it doesn't call attention to it. Like we see a flash of them dancing and I feel like so many romance dramas would hone in and spend 60 seconds watching them dance in various ways, showing us how close their bodies get and how sensual they are. But that's not the way that Barry Jenkins shoots it. You know that that's sort of taking place, but it's in this joyful uh, side piece where it's like we're not quite privy to the details, but we know it's taking place and we can just kind of be happy for them in that moment. It's also really, I think, important to juxtapose like, they are just as happy sitting in an, an Italian restaurant having a nice fancy meal as they are in the very final scene of this movie where they are sitting at a table in a prison waiting room with their child and they are eating a meal from a vending machine. But their love is not broken and it's not about the food and it's not about where they're sitting. They are still together, whether they are surrounded by Italians Diego Luna, who I always get confused with Pedro Pascal, who are both in this movie, and it drove me crazy because I was like, wait a second, wasn't he back at the Italian restaurant? Why is this happening? Um, I know it's just probably, I hope it's not just me. Those two guys, I swear, I get them confused in every movie. But uh, Don's like, it's just you. Uh, but no, really, I, I just think that that's so important to see how those circumstances don't make or break this relationship in any way at all. Um, it is so much more deeper, the connection they have. The uh, other big thing that we really deal with in this movie that is taking place kind of throughout this narrative of this love story is life for black Americans with regards to the issues that they face uh, with policing, lack of housing, the economy, things such as that racism to put it bluntly what can we learn colby i'll start with you of course from seeing people who live without privilege depicted in such a loving and realistic way that is like you mentioned it's nothing like what we typically see 70s black america depicted at it does not play into the narrative that we are sold about what blacks in harlem look like yeah i mean one of the toughest things that I had to grapple with with this film and a lot of its themes, unfortunately, folks, this is not a happy ending that you get in this story in the conventional sense. However, even though it breaks a lot of the rules in screenwriting where you do not want to leave your audience with an unhappy ending, right? It still is very hopeful that even though America is crippled by a lot of the just inherent biases and differences that we choose to linger on as opposed to celebrating the things that we do that are all the same. Um, it's still very hopeful. It's hopeful because there is love. And if we choose to lead a life of love, that's the only way that you can combat hate is by choosing to lead a life of love and it's evident in you know tish's family the way that they choose love in the face of hard things 
Um, it's not as evident in Fani's family, but they still love one another. That's still the aspiration. Um, the beautiful thing is that Fani and Tish's love is what matters. And even as their family changes and in the face of their circumstances becoming more and more dire, when money is the only solution to is one of the only few solutions to this problem. Um, the idea of justice is not that. Um, justice is very much conditional. If you have the proper representation, well, where do you get the representation from? If you have the proper amount of funds to fund that representation, well, what does that matter if, you know, it's no matter what going to still look different to other people? There's so many frustrating points in this film that just feel like, what? what's the point of even going on when any, everything that's pitted up against you, like, is unfair, right? Um, and that's a tough story to tell, especially in a contemporary sense where, I mean, obviously, from a black man, I, I felt this, you know, you know, on a lot of firsthand accounts. Or for some folks, it's hard to see this and really accept it. You know, we can see a character like Ed Scrine's officer. Where are there really people that are just innately evil? I don't think it's intentional. You know, it's just not. Um, this wasn't someone who was like, you know, prowling the streets looking for someone to just pick on. He could just pick on them because he can. And there was no, there's, there, there's no, you know, consequence for it. It's just, we can. One of the most gut-wrenching scenes that is truly terrifying is what Brian Tyree Henry does, you know, in the later part of the second act of the film, depicting just his journey in the prison system. And it is, it's, it's really hard to hear. And, Brian Tyree Henry is a phenomenal actor, and he has such little screen time in this film, and he easily <laughs> would have got a nomination for Best Supporting Actor for me because it's soul-stirring, because you can see it in his vibes and hear the shaking of his voice, this strong black man visibly terrified when he talks about um, what the white presence has been in his life. Um, but all in all in that, there's still hope. Um, and the hope has to rely on the fact that we have to choose love instead of hate. Real quick, I, I want to point out or jump in, I guess, because, you know, when you said Ed Skrine's character and you were talking about that, I, I, I love how you put that, that it's, he's in a position that we've a culture that has created the ability for him to react the way that he reacts. He's not necessarily, he's acting because this is the system that'll that is created for him to act this way and he is also reacting out of ego and it's interesting to me because one of the big things that i, I see in a lot of films is we often equate big egos to people who are making bad choices and a lot of times that's black folks in movies right criminals who have these big egos they can't just can't get over it because they want to bow up and fight at every every instance if you upset them or you talk smack or you know you offend them in some way they you disrespect them that's a big word this all happens because Ed Skrine's character Officer Bell feels disrespected that's the only reason this happens is because he gets kind of called out in public and instead of being like my bad cool no we no big deal I'm just gonna move on his ego is hurt and now bruised, and so he has to make it right. And this is the way he fights back against feeling disrespected. It's really no different than 
two guys on a basketball court and one guy feeling like he didn't foul somebody, but mm-hmm. that guy's yelling and screaming and now he's, now we're fighting. We're fist fighting. And now somebody's pulling a gun because we're escalating. And that is exactly what's taking place here. It's just that because he's in a place of power, because he has police officer ability to do this, he can ruin his life in a way that otherwise wouldn't be the case. Uh, so I just, I just thought that was a really yeah. brilliant point by you. No, I, I, um, in terms of this, like, what can you learn and all that, um, I, I go back to, uh, those images that Jenkins inserts along the way that Kiki narrates, like those black and white images of the actual times, not these fictitious recreations that are the movie and all that, and how she, she is constantly speaking on the state of things and, uh, uh, the, the climate and the culture of things in those images of the actual Harlem and the actual era come in and show, um, you know, the bricks in the streets, the ugly alleys, the, the living conditions and all that. And I, I, I felt like those pieces of the movie remind us that while we're watching in terms of learning, while we're watching fiction and while we're, while we're being held wonderfully and intimately by a love story through, um, ugly times and trauma, we're still given those proper reminders that, Hey, you know, there might not be a Tish and a Fani in real life, but there were a lot of Tishas and there were a lot of Fani's. And this could have happened to any number of people, including those people we see in the photographs and the way that we talk about them. And I'll circle this back to kind of Jenkins' intention was show a female POV on this. And to have, like I said, we, like we've said this whole time, to have Tish narrate this and to have Tish walk us through this and have her growth and arc, whatever you want to call it, be the way that we observe this. Um, yeah, that's, that's good. That's, it's really strong by Jenkins to see that. And, and I think if anyone wants a companion piece to this, go watch, I am not your Negro, the documentary afterwards, where you see this era and this time. And it, and if you need the fiction first and the, and the hard stuff second, that's where you go. Yeah, no kidding. They're definitely tied together, uh, in a really powerful way. So the, the big kind of thing that gets funny arrested and dooms this relationship to one of being apart is officer bell um, pointing Fawny into a lineup um, to where he becomes accused of raping a hispanic woman or a latin woman um, and i found that you know pretty important that she also is a person of color who uh, has three kids and has a lot to lose in this area that she's living in. This is not just a white woman. Um, this is someone else who could be manipulated and, and needs to do what she has to do to look out for herself and her children as we come to find out. And I wonder what you guys thought about that uh, as far as, and, and also just the uncomfortable way in which the rape is dealt with in this situation. I'm so thankful we didn't have to watch it. We didn't need that in a movie like this. We don't need that in most movies, to be honest. But um, there's a moment where Victoria is relating, trying to tell her story to Sharon. And it is, it's so heartbreaking to me on both sides from Victoria's perspective, but also from Sharon's perspective, like hearing what she has to hear and understanding what it means for Fonny but also why she can't hold that against Victoria all at the same time. 
How did all that play for you, Kobe? Man, it's it's tough. Um, in the sense that understanding American history, oftentimes you'll have forces in a place of power where in order to keep power, they've got to do things to manipulate how people see them, right? Um, oftentimes you'll find persons or people in a place of privilege and power that will pit those who don't have power against one another. And this is exactly what happens. Um, I think Sharon, um, Virginia King's character, truly believes in her heart of hearts. And she says this several times that Victoria was raped. And I love how this film didn't decide to point any fingers. Um, it was not made explicit of like, oh, this was cops who did this or this was who or whatever. It, it, it doesn't focus on that because that's not the focus. There was an act that was perpetrated against this woman and she indeed is a victim and her life is ruined. Um, and the unfortunate thing is, is that she may have been goaded to point a finger at anyone. And unfortunately, it happened to be Fani, who we believe in the story. What we see is that this this is outside of his character. Um, even looking at the time of events and as Finn Whitrock's character, the lawyer, you know, even says, how could he have done this? Like, it would be like just – it just doesn't make sense for him to be go from one place to another. Um, and to see – to see how Sharon is visibly – sensitive to this woman's trauma while at the same time trying to find room for her to you know for, for try to convince her to like seek compassion and to her you know th th there's a there's a ticking time you know that, that that sharon has to get this information and she's going to great lengths um and it, it, it it's it's really tough um but i thought it was handled like you said it, it was very delicate um this almost didn't even need to be an element in the story that um, for a lot of folks could have been tackled in that way. Uh, but I'm glad that Barry Jenkins had like such a finesse to not gloss over it, um, to still let Victoria be a victim and still try to work her way through. And it's a really powerful scene that they have in the back of that, you know, alley um, in, in Puerto Rico. Um, but it, it still was like deeply effective and then also it's still it's still very much sorrowful because we never get to have justice for either you know when i look at this subplot or i guess the b plot that allows for Fani to go through his journey i was reminded of the intentionality reminded me uh, of, of using a Puerto Rican character as opposed to like a white woman to create this, this kind of tension. And I was reminded of a conversation I had with Matt Fletcher after the Oscars. And he was just seeing how proud he was that Parasite won and getting a chance to talk to him about how I was reminded of the fact that when we talk about POCs, we're not talking about POOCs, people of one color. And I, I know that, the American narrative is absolutely heavily influenced by, and rightfully so, the injustice of black Americans. But stories like this, seeing this, remind me that when we talk about people of color, we're talking about Hispanics. We're talking about Chinese, Asian Americans. And as someone who is trying to be responsible holistically, watching this play out and seeing how Barry Jenkins doesn't point a finger. 
He just sees the repercussions of that and lets us live in that. The repercussions of having to plead. What? Having to have a plea because you have no out. But that your only out is just as much of a victim as you are. And you cannot force that. And he puts us in this place of real tension where he's going, he's telling us, either way, you're going to destroy someone. Because I couldn't imagine bringing this woman back to have her testify that this person didn't do it. No. I mean, she fled to Puerto Rico because her life was over where she was at. And the way that Jenkins allows us to feel empathy for both, I think, is something very rare. Because you either get one side of the story or the other. Here you get both. You get both truth, these two truths that live in the same place. And Aaron, you and I talked about this, I don't know, several years ago when we were talking about um, 10 Cloverfield Lane, actually, these two concepts that live in the same space. It has to do with this duality of things that are true that can look like they're in conflict, but they actually do and can exist in the same space. And you actually do have a woman who was victimized, not only physically, but probably manipulated emotionally, probably manipulated politically. And then you have on the other end of that, a man who had no geographical way of being at that scene, as it was explained, who doesn't have the demeanor or the personality to elicit something like that, as we're seeing played out with, with his relationship with Tish. And we're, we're, we're sort of asking ourselves, well, who do we pick? Who do we pick? And the problem is we can't pick anybody because we're not involved in this. And what we end up having to understand is that, yeah, it's not a happy ending, but it's not just a happy ending for our two leads. It's, it's an unhappy ending for this woman who will never, ever, ever see life the same way again, that she will be scarred because of this experience and maybe what she had to falsely admit to will eventually maybe become a truth. Maybe she will eventually make her way back to the United States and she'll see every black man as the enemy, which is so, so unfair because it's not her fault, right? And yet this is the narrative that plays out. Um, and so it was eye-opening to kind of see that. I don't know if Jenkins was doing this intentionally. I'd like to think he was. I really do like him because he's a smart guy. But in spite of all that, I think there is a sense of closure that we get in the very in the sense that, as you mentioned, Aaron, you have you have Tish and her son visiting Fonny. And I don't know if he's like he looks like he's six or seven. But at least in that moment, we don't see a sense of resentment. We see him lean over, kiss his boy on the on the head. I've done that. And I mean, I'm, th any moment with the father's son is going to get me. And he's coloring and he shows him what he's coloring and they share a bag of chips. And the camera shot just pulls back and we see where they're at. But we also know that they have something that won't be broken in spite of an injustice that that injustice didn't define them before and that injustice won't define them now and everything in me wants to know that he's going to get paroled soon honestly because i want them to be together so, so i mean 
it's really good stuff, man. Um, I, I think one thing that you're talking about and that Colby, you articulated, you said that Jenkins never places blame on any one party. And I think there's another area that actually where that happens that is very subtle because the almost opening scene of the movie being introduced to Fawny, we get this one line of, you know, he was working in this workshop and he stole the tools to like start his own business. Right. And that's it. It's never focused on. He's never have, does never have blame placed on him for that action, but also it's never treated in a way that makes it say, okay, that was the right choice. It simply is presented to us as this is the choice that was made. And this is why he made it, which is realistic. And it's not about there. It really is one of the things I think that the filmmaking does that is that's what sets it apart from other movies is in so many films there is a message and we talk about that and this is to me a good example of what that can be because this is what it is when it's not there when there is a message there is a scene or a point of dialogue or something that tells you how to feel you should either feel that funny and or the two dads are wrong for stealing in order to fix this situation or you should feel sorry for them because they had no other means and therefore they are completely in the right this movie does neither it is like the equivalent of an unbiased documentary where it just presents the situation and lets you approach it however you may but without calling any attention to either of those scenes in a way that makes you even really consider it like because you're just like that's what happened it's brilliant. It really is brilliant. And when you look at that and then you kind of think about all the other movies and how it would be handled, it would be so different. Um, and I just, I thought that was a very small thing that points out just how masterful he is at getting across the story that he wants to get across. Man, I guess that kind of my last topic or my last thing is, you know, Don, you, you talked about getting to read some of James Baldwin's works. You're the teacher. Um, you, we all, I guess, really adore the poetry and the words of Baldwin here in this screenplay that it means so much to this film. Is there anything else that you had that you wanted to say about James Baldwin in particular? Yeah, it's just, um, you have to, the fun part is when you step out of this and you play time traveler, where you look at who and what James Baldwin was back then, like he was in, alienated even by his own people in era, you know, as a, as a, uh, as a closeted homosexual, you know, he, yeah, spending time in Europe, yet he has this passion and understanding of love that he can write in this way, plug it into this setting and plug it into this era with frankness, with frankness as well as complexity where it's really cool. And the snippets I've read of him, I was just always impressed with, again, and it doesn't come up in narration, it comes up in the way we get to see Jenkins put it on screen, is the body language, you know? The characters have plenty of wonderful affirming words and verses of affection that we get all over the place. But, uh, you know, uh, you know, the I belong to in the flesh of each other's flesh, and I'm yours and you're mine, and that's it. And some of those lines, but it's... I, I, I keep going back to the gazes where it's the body language in between, and I think that's a very difficult thing for a filmmaker to put on screen, is if you have 
pages and pages of just descriptions of the way a movement is happening and it takes four pages to explain a love scene or 15 pages to explain a love scene how you distill that down throw on some music put on some moods and tell a and tell two actors just look at the camera because that's the fun part about those gazes when they look directly in the camera all they see is one big lens they don't see kiki lane they don't see stephen james they have to just you know get to a place where what you're looking at through that hole is the love of your life and the thing you want and we're doing this with this lengthy and verbose prose how do you shape it how do you turn that into a movie and here comes jenkins you know taking the power of baldwin's words with asides and absolutes and bountifulness and descriptions and bringing it all forward it's amazing i'm gonna let that be the stopping point for <laughs> for moving into connecting point because that's beautiful man uh i think you just did james baldwin proud by describing james baldwin i think he would appreciate that wholeheartedly and we are going to move now into connecting points this is something that happens occasionally when we get four people on the podcast which is a rare thing but sometimes we end up with four different connecting points and that's the case tonight so this will take a little bit longer but that's fine Um, may even have some dialogue who knows this movie has a ton of connecting points it's one of those kind of films and so I'm sure that we probably could have added another four or five to this list of four and all been content with that. But we're going to go with these. And Colby, as we've been doing all night, how about you kick us off with your connecting point? Yeah. Um, the scene that really struck me the most um, that like I just and it's weird because I never lived it, but I felt exactly where Tish was when she's first telling her mom that she's pregnant by Fani. And there's always this intense pressure as you have something that you need to divulge and you do not want to feel like you are a disappointment to your parents. And there's a sense of shame or embarrassment that can come upon you. And I think Pat, you had mentioned earlier, um, Tiana Paris, who plays Tish's sister, she tells her to pick her head up as, she, as if she already knew, right? And there's such this synergy that her family has that I, I, I really adore it. Um, they're so in tune with one another. And I think it's because the leader in the family is Sharon. And Sharon really, she influences, you could tell that she has a great influence on Tish, and yes, she's younger, she's still growing, but she has great influence on, you know, Tish's older sister, and she even has influence on her husband, that when she relays what's happening, there's a second where the dad is trying to contemplate, like, what's going on, because he's understanding of the situation, and that's his, that's his baby girl, you know, and because she leads the, she kind of leads the situation to say, this is going to be a good thing. He completely quickly follows suit and he flips and it becomes a celebration. This moment of shame that, that, that Tish, you know, was just like completely dreading turns into this moment of just like absolute celebration and comfort and a moment to dance and get the good wine drink. And, you know, and I, I think, um, you know, Don, you had said it earlier, uh, this film's dialogue is for a lot of folks they cannot get it because they're talking jive 
we don't hear this syntax in the way that people speak. And it's so beautiful to hear all this going on at the same time. And, and then just knowing what the events are going to happen afterwards. Um, this was so refreshing. And I just found it like really, really important to have. My connecting point follows yours immediately in scene, so I'll flow right to it. And that is the emergency family summit, as they call it, where once I saw that scene as an audience member, that would, the, your scene that you're talking about beforehand brings you in. And then that scene blows it all up where I'm like, just from a performance standpoint and the editing standpoint and the way they, they put those people together and they put those personalities together. I watched that scene and I watched it in a very favorable crowd. Um, I watched it at a screening for, um, for SAG and for all the guild members who were watching, you know, watching it for awards purposes. So it was a, it was a very busy hot room of actors and filmmakers and writers. And Jenkins was there and Kiki Lane was there. And the oohs and ahs and the catcalls during that scene of just, that's the place I know we talked about earlier where there's not really an action moment and there's not even a laugh out loud, funny aside or joke or side character, but that scene got all the noise in the world in my screening and it just it, it, it's the most explosive part to where this is all going and as a connecting point ah you know not to that degree and not to that exact topic but man i've been in family rooms like that in too many stages of my life where you know i i come from redneck terrible republican people in the country and i married the asian girl so, you know, I've had those conversations of like, oh, great, you know, this is where this is going to go, huh? Or like, that's the one you've chosen. And or the, I'm also in my second marriage where, you know, you know are you sure this is what you're going to do? Or is that really what you want? And, you know, you get some thinly veiled and then not so thinly veiled pushback with your life decisions and heaven forbid you have children or all those things like that. So, you know, I, yeah, I've been in too many rooms of that where, and and, I, and my wife even in a degree has it too, where there's, you know, we're, my wife and I are a pair of school teachers. We don't make a lot of money where it just becomes keeping up with the Joneses, even on some of her sides of the family to say it in a simple way. And yet we're the outcasts because we're kind of the, you know, we're the other people. We're the, we're the teachers. We're not trying to get this and that. And we live very simple and do different things than everybody else in the family. And, and, and that goes for both sides of us. We have both my wife and I have two sides two halves of our family that we just don't talk to because we just don't fit and they don't fit us and they're, they just bring us down and they're toxic and we just don't include them in our lives. So man, yeah, I've been in, I've been a family spots like that where if they, I, I wish I could just bring my own popcorn and watch my own family blow up like that one. Cause that was fun. Well, Patrick, what about uh, you? Where did, did you have a family related connecting point as well? It was sort of a family moment. It was the scene. It was two scenes threaded together. James with, Franco's family. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Yet again, in a in a in a movie that centers around a solid black cast, I picked the one scene with the white person in it. So just I'm two for two when it comes to that. I did this with us as well. And um, and the scene that that I connected with the most was where where Tish and Fami were looking for a new place and they were being led around by, I guess, a landlord played by Dave Franco. He plays a guy named Levy who, or Levy, excuse me, who's a, who's Jewish. And, um, Fami tries to convince Tish that this is a great place. And he ends the scene by mimicking, bringing in, I think it's a couch or refrigerator of some kind. And he uses, he uses Levy 
to help him kind of sell that. And there's this really great smile at the end where you could see she's kind of buying into it because she says, boys, you forgot the oven or you forgot the stove. I'm like, oh, sorry. And then it makes its way up to the rooftop. And you see Levy looking at them saying, what do you think? And Fonny says, what's the catch? No offense, Levy, but we've been looking a long time. Don't seem there's a good reason to treat two Negroes so nice-like. And Levy says, look, man, with me, it's pretty simple. I dig people who love each other. Black, white, green, purple, whatever. Just spread the love, you know? And Fonny kind of takes a dig at him. And he says, oh, so you're a hippie now? And he says, no, 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 no. He says, I'm just my mother's son. Sometimes that's all that makes the difference between us and them. And here's the exclamation point on that scene. It's a two-shot. You've got Fawny in the foreground. You've got Tish in the background. And Fawny sighs. Tish sighs. And they both smile just slightly. And it turns a little bit bigger. And then that incredible score comes in. And it's almost as like the scene is ending this tension. And when I look at that, and you couple that with understanding the sense of beyond the stupid concept of not seeing color, but really about seeing the people, seeing these individuals, this couple that deeply love each other and really investing in that. I love that Levy wasn't trying to make a statement. He was just like, this is what I know. This is, I'm my mother's son. This is the product of what has come out of this world that I've lived in. I, you obviously know I'm Jewish and I don't have to say it. I mean, we're just kind of gleaning that obviously from his look, but he's not denouncing that either. He is just, this is who I am. And that should be enough to find common ground is that we both, the three of them see the love that two people have for each other as a good thing. And that's hopeful to me because you could get cliche and say, love is where it's at. But in reality, transparency and seeing people beyond one character trait or two character traits or obvious character traits and really seeing and championing what they want, this life to live together, um, it was really fantastic. And it wasn't cheesy. It wasn't just optimistic. I think it was in some ways realistic. And I'm glad that Barry Jenkins included that because he could have just left it in a negative place. He could have let this be yet another thing that they have to struggle with. And in the middle of this whole thing, there's this moment where we never see him again. We never see Levy again. He just, he leaves the scene by saying, okay, just let me know when you get that deposit together. And that's it. That's all we're left with. And for me, that's all I needed. Yeah, this was probably my number two, and it's because the way in which Fawny pretends to move this imaginary furniture, it just is such a great expression of his love for Tish, and again, his way of making her comfortable in a situation that she is nervous about or uncomfortable about, and then uh, you get, this is probably one of the only comedy moments in the entire movie, essentially, which is Levy kind of it's really sweet. It's not comedy, but like, it's funny to us because he helps Fawny do that. And, and but it, it's hit with that tagline, that, that line of dialogue of what a man wouldn't do for love. 
right? And it, and it again is I think hitting home this action. Love is an action. It's not it, we're in a movie that is expressive as heck with its words and dialogue, which is what people tend to think love is, or it's a feeling. But yet, all we see in this over and over again is the action that these people take to show their love for one another. Um, and, and actually, yours yours connects to mine in a great way because of the way in which, at the end of it, Fawny is so happy that he gets a place for them. Um, and that's part of what is taking place in mind, which is uh, Fawny and Daniel's conversation at the table. Uh, and, and like you earlier, Colby, I've been holding the, the whole freaking podcast to do this because I am a Brian Tyree Henry stan. And I don't use that word lightly because I don't like that word. He's ridiculous. And I love Brian Tyree Henry like crazy. And I, and I agree. Like he's always just one of the best pieces of any movie he's in, whether it's for five minutes or for the whole darn thing. And we get him introduced in this great way, right? Where we're getting that narration from Tish. We're getting her POV. She said, time had not improved Daniel. He was big, black, and loud. And I'm going, all right, we all know that guy, right? Whether you're white or black, you know that guy. And yet he is Fonny's best friend, and they're so different. They're not the same. And we get into this amazing little moment in time where we get to see Fawny interacting with someone other than Tish, like an actual friendship. And it, it definitely is, I think, cementing Fawny's character, who he is, because he's that same dude, whether he's with his friends or not. And their stories and the conversations were just, they were, they had me in tears. Just the whole time. I mean, the, the conversation starts off with them talking about how the country doesn't like black people. And he's talking about how he goes through this situation where he is promised a place to rent to Tish. But then when he comes back and, and it goes to this place, they, they take it away and they call the cops and they won't give him the place to, to rent because of racial bias. He says something about how people will rent to a leper before a black person. And Daniel's telling his story, right, about prison. And it's so affecting. Like you said, Colby, he says, when you're in there, they can do with you whatever they want. And all we ever see is the emasculated, strong, you ain't gonna hurt me, black man. In 99% of movies. We don't see a broken black man who gets abused just like anybody else. That was something else to me. And, and, and to put it in the body of Ryan Tyree Henry, who has one of the most deep voices, he is a big man who you would immediately be like, oh, he could defend for himself, right? He's a big guy. Nothing's going to happen to him. But no, it happened to him. And it leads to this conversation where he's like, you know, prison experience and this, the treatment that makes you, leads to you believing that white man has to be the devil. And they, you can tell that they don't really believe that, but you can tell that what else are they supposed to believe because that's their experience and they're struggling with that. They're trying to reconcile that with the, what they have, what they see versus what they know to be right. And it's awful. And it manifests itself, you know, with, Daniel saying, 
the worst thing is that they can make you so effing scared. Just scared. And again, to me, it's so extra powerful because it's coming from Brian Tyree Henry. Not only from an acting standpoint, but just like that body. Because we are visual people and we have so much inherent bias in us when we see a big, deep-talking black man that he shouldn't be the guy that's scared. He shouldn't be the guy crying at the table. And the beautiful part about this is that in the middle of it, Bonnie talks about how he doesn't know why he loves the things he loves, being wood and stone and tish. He said, you know, whatever's in me, I ain't put it there, but I damn sure can't take it out. And then this whole moment of pain, of expressive sharing of realness between two black men, like I have never seen in movies before. Uh, actually, I have seen in movies before, but it was only in Moonlight. <laughs> so Barry Jenkins movies. And then we get a lovely three person meal together with laughter and smiles and they enjoy the fact that they can share time and be safe in this moment with one another. And, and it's just, it's crazy. Like that, that whole scene could have been like a short film to me. Um, and it'd be perfect. So I'm, that was mine. I'm with you there where like for a while there, when you get the harrowing nature of what he's talking about. That's on par with like the Indianapolis speech from Quint and Jaws for a while there, where you're like, oh, wait, we're laughing, we're having fun, we're kicking back, it's two boys, and then all of a sudden, let me tell you this story right here that just gets worse and worse. Thank goodness you got that wonderful three-person dinner of Harmony at the end, but man, that's... Whew. Well, that brings us to the end of what I consider a fantastic conversation. It's been really, really good. Coming up here in the next couple of weeks, we look at another Barry Jenkins film, Moonlight, followed by a trip back to the theater where we check out the updated and potentially reimagined thriller, The Invisible Man, with Colesse Davis, who I know is pretty jacked about that one, followed by the Pixar original Onward. So be sure to tune in for those. Don Shanahan, the man. Where can people find you if they want to continue this conversation or anything else? Uh, people can find me and read my review of the number one movie of 2018 that we just talked about here uh, on Everything Every Movie Has a Lesson. You can search that.com. You can search that on Facebook. You can search that on Twitter. You'll find me there. Between all those places, I will be happy and willing to say, hey, uh, my work is also published on 25YL, and I have the What We Learned This Week column right here on Film and Film. Fantastic. Colby, what about you, my friend? You can find your boy. I'm on all the socials at Kobe told me on Instagram and Twitter. I'm on Facebook at Kobe Mac. You can catch all my written reviews when I decide to write them at the Kobe told me dot com and check out my podcast. The Kobe told me podcast. I release it whenever I want to. So that way, when you uh, when they ask you where you heard it from, you just tell them Kobe told me. The smoothest voice on the Internet. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> Gentlemen, thanks for another great conversation. And we'll talk soon. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. 
And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filled.